Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, May the 21st, 2019. Last week, it was 45 degrees and you could see your breath in the air. This week, the sun is shining and it's really spring, like true spring, like spring moving on summer. And that makes me really happy. Another thing that makes me happy, you are listening to episode 101. That's right, kids. For the past two and a half years, I have been bringing you guest artist interviews with people whose stories have historically been devalued, dismissed, and discarded. And I couldn't be prouder or more happy to bring this to you. But all good things must eventually come to a pause. And we're going to take a brief hiatus for a little while. We have another project to work on. But we'll be back sooner rather than later. But until then... The sun is here, so enjoy. back with episode 101 of Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was from the Beatles. It's called Here Comes the Sun and it's from their Abbey Road album back in 1969. And we kind of broke a little bit of precedent for the show. Usually what I would do is that I would pick a song that I thought kind of went with the other songs the guest artist picked and kind of like foreshadow what was to come. But I thought I'd mix it up a little bit this week. And why not? It's episode 101. I could do what I want. (laughs) Well, we have a lot of show for you this week, kids, so let's get right to it and continue with another song that our guest artist this week picked for their episode. Thank you. 
<laughs> you know, it's really interesting how the older I get, the more I come to appreciate and really love the music that my parents love to listen to and most of my family and that I totally turned my nose up at when I was a teenager. Isn't it funny how people evolve? And isn't it good? Well, that song was about dancing, like I said, bailal. The name of the song is Que Bueno Baila Usted, which is How Well You Can Dance. It's from the Buena Vista Social Club Presents Ibrahim Ferrer album in 1999. 
And this song, this version was by Ibrahim Ferel, but it was also first written by another Afro-Cuban legend, Benny More. I love the music education I get on this show. Woohoo! And I also love the guest artists. And I'm going to stop blah blahing now because for the 101st time, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! I'm sitting here with a guest artist whom I've admired ever since I made her acquaintance. And I'm very excited to bring her story to you today. Please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, the unbreakable, hint, hint, Sol Miranda. Ooh, yeah! Thank you for having me, Michelle. Thank you. It's an honor to be here and talking with you before the program even. So much to talk about, right? Yes, because we had a little bit of a visit beforehand. I, I call it the warm-up. The warm-up. <laughs> it was the warm-up. So thank you so much for making time for me in, in your busy day to chat. And um, I ask this of every guest artist whenever we begin our time together. How and where did we meet? Well, we met uh, a year ago as I was trying to get you to peak skill to be a part of a storytelling event. It was supposed to be uh, in February. And yes. then we we had to cancel because of snow. It got canceled like three times, three right? Times. Because yeah. of snow. Yeah, we yeah I remember to, that. We had to do it like on March 28th, I think Yes, it was. that's when it was, March 20th. I think it was like supposed to be the beginning of February, the end of February, the beginning of March, and then we finally <laughs> did it at the end of March. And that was with Judith Heineman put that together. Yes, please. Yes. yes. Let's mention Judith Heineman, who yeah. is a master storyteller. Yes. She introduced us both. Yeah, because you didn't know one. me. Then you no. knew Judith. Judith was the one that invited me to join her up yes, there. Yes, yes. And she curated. She actually curated yeah. the event and uh, embarked the nonprofit performing arts organization that I co-founded with Katie Schmidt Fader. Uh, Judith Heinemann is a member, and we have collaborated with her. And in return, what we would offer Judith and other members of Embark would be space, equipment, marketing, promotion, mm -hmm. etc. So that's how Judith and I have known each other for so long. She's going to be excited we're talking about her. I know she She's is. Amazing. Yeah, and that was great. I remember, I totally remember that night because I got my childhood friend whom I hadn't really been in touch with for a number of years who lives in Pico. She's about to move, but she came to the show and you were with an improv group and you brought my friend up to do a couple of the sketches, and she was really funny. She was very funny, and then the second part was going to be... The storytelling. The storytelling, yes. you, Judith Heineman, and, and Joy, Joy and Rich. Joy. The organization, after eight years, um, we decided to go on hiatus, take a little break. Mm. It's a lot of work. One thing I do want to mention before we move on is I think I sold Goodwill that day, and last September... I auditioned for something called Writers in Performance with the Tribeca Performing Arts Center. And after I did my audition piece 
The man looked at me and says, do I know you? And he's like, did you ever come to Peekskill? His name is Mario Giacalone. Yes. And he was in the improv group that night. Yes. So he saw me tell my story. Yes. And then I ended up doing the writers and performance with him. Yes. So we got to shout out and Mario. Mario, yes, Mario is amazing. And the connection, you know, the six degrees of separation. I'm telling you. That's, that's, that's amazing. So, so happy that you did that. Yeah, me too. So let's retrack a little bit here. Also ask this for everybody. Where are you from originally? I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Yeah, Pueblo. Um, well, my mother went to have me in Manatee, in the North she, Coast. North Coast. Yeah. Northeast and Northwest. It's kind of smack in the middle almost. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, right before Arecibo. But I really grew up in the first five years of my life in Bayamón. And the, the rest of my years until I was 21 um, in a suburb of San Juan, Coupe, in Rio Piedras. I did my college in Puerto Rico at the University of Puerto Rico. Rio Piedras. I knew I wanted to study theater and acting. Did you grow up in an education or artistic-oriented family? Uh, artistically, not by education or training, but I was surrounded by music, guitars, of course, and always surrounded by neighbors playing beautiful music as well. The joy of the Puerto Rican people when the holidays come and they oh, all yeah. get together, the families, and everybody's singing, but you see these these people who are not professional singers, they are doing beautiful harmonies, and people are playing guitars very well. Did your parents play? No, but my father always was one of the singers in, in those uh, family or holiday parties. I, I hear stories of... Some long time ago, cousin that um, was an amazing singer, and he used to serenade uh, young women in this town called Caguas. Do you have siblings? Yes, I do. Uh, where are you in the order? I am the baby. You're the baby? Yes, Aww. yes. My sister and brother are eight and seven years older than me. So there's a gap there. Yeah, yeah. there's a little bit of a gap there. Yeah. yeah. So you really are the baby. <laughs> but I enjoyed a lot of fun and le and freedom because uh, by the time I came and then I, when I became a teenager, not that my parents stopped being you know, their strict Puerto Rican way, but uh, definitely I had more freedom than my siblings Oh, had, I'm sure you, know, you had more. They were tired. They yeah. were like, "Oh, okay, mija, te veo. Okay, later." Right, and and your older sister probably had to be home until at nine o'clock until she was like twenty four. Until <laughs> well, my sister was always chaperoned. I was oh. never chaperoned. Wow. Yeah, it makes a big difference. So, are you the only person in your family out of your siblings that pursued an artistic career? Yes, I was the only crazy one. Yes. So, w at what age did you know that you were one of the weirdos? Uh, since I remember, I don't know, four or five years old, I remember acting in front of the mirror, especially when I got uh, scolded by my mother or <laughs> hit with the chancleta in my butt. And then <laughs> I would cry in front of the bathroom mirror to imitate the the glamorous ladies from the novelas no, that, we, that I grew up watching with my mom. I would put the towel, the towel over my head to simulate that I had long hair. <laughs> but then fantasy would kick in, the imagination would kick in, and then I would use the emotion to go into an imaginary situation, which is what acting is about. 
Did you have an imaginary world with characters also? Did you, like, write stories? Did you make your own plays? I just, I improvised out loud, right? My mother thought that I was going crazy sometimes. It was going to be either, it was going to be acting and, and teaching because I also had a toy chalk uh, board and I also had imaginary students I talked to, and I was a very tough, tough teacher. And this is all by yourself because your other siblings were too old to play these baby exactly. games with you. Exactly. So how did your parents take this? That my daughter has 17 personalities. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, my dad wasn't there. He was at work, of course. But I think my mom, I, she just didn't pay mind to it. She just let me just go. She, I just remember she would just walk by the hallway and say something like, Ave Maria, esa maestra es bien tough, you know? <laughs> Poor students. Um, that teacher is very tough. But then something clicked in third grade. I was eight years old. And for some reason, the, I, I was just getting tired with the religion class. I went to a Catholic school from kinder through 12th grade. You had the religion class every day. And my religion class in third grade was the last period. In that classroom, we had um, a velvety depiction of the Last Supper, like that kind of velvet, very 70s, very colorful. With the blonde-haired, blue-eyed oh, yeah, were... So I just, sick and tired of religion, I guess early rebellion, I would stand up in the middle of class approach the painting, look at it as if I were in some kind of spell, and then I would start speaking in tongues. What? Did you come from a religious family? Was this, was this in your background? No. I no, was no, no, Pentecostal? Was, no, 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 no. This was all fake. I knew what I was doing on oh, purpose. Okay. I did not go into some kind of rapture. This was complete manipulation and planning. I just made up an invented language. Oh, my God. Another that is acting so exercise. That is so funny. <laughs> the class would stop. The teacher would be, I remember Mrs. Aponte, bendito por her. <laughs> did Jesus ever talk back? Mm -hmm. did, did Jesus ever talk back? Of course. Wow. Nobody heard. Oh, okay. Just me. I channeled. Oh, my God. I, I not only channeled Jesus, I channeled the disciples. So basically, I was giving them the theater, the drama of the painting, and then I would end by fainting. So I would go so high in my tongue talking and channeling, then I would faint. Did you have nuns or did you have lay teachers? Lay teachers, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Oh, my God. They would have put little exorcism on you or something. <laughs> yes. So yeah. what, were the t what was the teacher's reactions to this and the student? The first couple of times she was alarmed. And, of course, I was taken to, to a psychiatrist. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, did, did, they, mean, did they bring your mother to school? Oh, yeah. No, no. This was did a they say, hey, they say, lo sienta, mi, uh, mija, pero ella está loca. Está loca, yeah. yeah. We're, so, we're sorry, ma'am, but your daughter's a little crazy. Yes. I would have been medicated. In today's, you know, world, I would have been Oh, I get that. I get and, that. And I... that would have dulled me. That who knows what would have done to my creative experience and what I do now. And how it would have stifled your, your personality and kept it from developing. Yeah. yeah right? Because yeah. that's what those medications do. Well, yes. thank God that they didn't have those back then. No, and the psychiatrist, you know, he said to my mom, you are fine, mija. Puta bien. They had that invento. Stop messing around, right? But I kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it a few more times until my sister was called because this time my mother was not going to come. And she whispered in my ear, if you do this again, 
te voy a dar frente a todo el mundo. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you in front of everybody to wake up. And of course, I slowly opened my eyes, moaned a bit, very dramatic, and uh, I never did it again. Wow. Well, until you did it again in a more sanctioned way, I'm assuming. Exactly. So from this maybe not so auspicious debut of your talents, when yeah. <laughs> when did you start channeling your creativity into a more, let's say, sanctioned frame? frame? Well, in that same school, in high school, my first theater teacher, Liliana Cruz, amazing, amazing. She gave us, she gave us great training. I mean, my junior year... In Puerto Rico and senior year, we were in theater productions and we went to high school theater festivals at the University of Sagrado Corazón in Santurce. And uh, that was the Emilio S. Belaval Theater Festival. We did it for two years. And one year we were champions and the second year we were like runner up. But there were always like supporting actor, best actor awards. That's I, great. Did, yeah. you, did your parents come to see you in these productions? Did your siblings come? Did you have support from your extended family? You know, n n unfortunately, that's something that, that I wish I had seen more. I don't think that they they felt it was serious. Mm. Um, and they were busy with whatever it was. We were a one-car family for a while, so... There was not a lot of attendance from their part, right? No wonder I go to therapy for abandonment <laughs> issues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because that also makes me wonder, it seems that at this point, you're on the road to just, I'm going to be an actor, and yeah. there's no other thing that I'm going to do. So I'm just wondering if at home, was somebody trying to steer you in another direction? Uh, actually, my mother trained as a dancer. I'm sorry, I, I you know, I missed that. But she didn't pursue it professionally. But um, when I was applying for college, even though I stayed in Puerto Rico for college, she was like, no, 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 do theater as a hobby, as a minor, take it as a minor, you want something solid. Spoken like a true mom. Exactly. And my, my dad, an engineer, grew up in the Depression, who had to work very hard to become an engineer and pay for his schooling, he was the one who said, go ahead, just go ahead. Wow. Director, just go for it. Because for him is, maybe he thought I was going to quit at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was like, déjala, sí. Déjala. Yeah, déjala, yes. and then she's going to come back. And yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Oh, that backfired. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? No, I know. But also he said, this is when you do it, when you're young. So if you want to change, if you want to make adjustments, you will have then you know, more energy to do whatever it is. Do that was whatever. smart. Yeah. So, of course, you went to college to pursue theater and acting. Is Was this when you started becoming professional, or did you not become professional until you came to the U.S. for your I master's? I did professional theater. My last two years of college, so 88 and 89, maybe 87 too, I can't remember. I graduated in 89, and I immediately, two months later, I flew to San Diego, to start my MFA. Was there any culture shock for you when you came to University of San Diego from oh, PR? Abso absolutely. All of a sudden, there's the English language. I was pretty fluid with it, but I didn't sound the way I sound now. So I you was... meaning your accent was heavier? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Also the translation, the mental translation, because I had not lived in a immersed environment, right? And I think that's where... 
language acquisition, bilinguality, etc., really kicks in when you go to the place and you're fully immersed. I, I, and I still have issues with stressing certain words because every language has its own sing-song, right? It's oh, yeah, own its own cadence. So was that school, that conservatory, the equivalent of, let's say, a Juilliard or a Stella Adler here in New York? Yeah, definitely. So by the time you graduated, did you just go straight to L.A.? What happens with these types of MFAs, they prepare showcases in front of agents and casting directors. So usually you just go, you go to L.A. We were pretty close, of course. And there's a showcase showing the class of actors, and then we to an invited audience to an of invited people. audience of people in the business, agents, maybe some producers, and we go also as a class to New York City, and, oh, pre- wow. and are presented. Uh, That's and fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time you were in New York City? No, I had come a couple of other times before that. That was probably my third or fourth time in New York City. But you ended up staying on the West Coast after your master's. No, I well, well yes, but I was in Seattle already because what happened after my master was that I had uh, fallen in love with this gentleman uh, who whom I met in a training for actors in Japan, and he was from Seattle. That was summer, July 1991. And then, uh, of course, I had to go back to San Diego. Then I went over there for the holidays, visited, and auditioned for a play that was going to happen in March 92. This was an equity small play at this theater company that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Group Theater. Susanna Tubert, a theater director, and now she's in Disneyland. She has a whole designer team working for her. It's fantastic. Um, I knew her briefly in the 90s. I think I auditioned for a couple of things for her. I remember her being so nice and encouraging. No, she's a very amazing and with great sensibility. And she she was going to direct what later done into a film, Real Women Have Curves. So I was in Real Women Have Curves at the group theater, and, and it was going to be an equity gig, so I was going to get my equity card right away, pretty much right after um, grad school. And then what happened was that my MFA people let, let me go with two months in advance so I could do that professional play. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then I did, got very lucky. Did things just take off from there? And pretty much, yeah, I did. I, then I stay in Seattle until 1995. I worked with the group theater a few other times after that and with the very renowned Seattle Children's Theater. So I'm assuming you left Seattle because the, the relationship fizzled out with, with that guy? No, no, no. We got married. And we moved to New York in 1995. Oh, wow. Park Slope, Brooklyn. Yeah. And I was doing theater and I was teaching at Hostel. That's when you became a teacher in 95? In 95. Were you training to be a teacher all along, like like as a minor or something? Or you just fell into teaching? Yes, yes. Um, That's great. I think uh, we are communicators, performers are communicators. It was a great thing to have while also pursuing acting in the city. And so it was great also that whenever I had to go to do regional theater, everything fell into, it, it, it was just divine timing because I would do my teaching in the morning and theater in New York, off Broadway, off, off Broadway. They didn't start rehearsing until 
noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. So I had time to sustain me financially because the off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway does not pay. <laughs> well, you know, there's equity yeah. contracts yeah. that are for yeah. small yeah. theater so, houses that are okay, but, you know. Yeah. When you moved here from Seattle, did you have the same representation that you had? No, I did not have any kind of representation. How were you getting auditions? It's, it's word of mouth. You, you start mm. going to those open calls to yes. the, where the directors see you, the theater directors. They don't have those you. anymore, do they? Oh, they do. They do through still? Equity. Through equity. Yes. Oh, through, but you have to be equity. Gotcha. You have to be equity, yes. So you went on a lot of auditions. I started going to all the open calls under equity for different theaters at the same time. I also visited the Latino directors. I didn't try the Portorio Español. I, I don't know, something with the schedule that never clicked for me. But I did work for Intar. I worked for PRTT. Two wonderful theaters. Yeah. Two wonderful yeah. theaters. Because I was going to ask if when you were auditioning for non-Latino productions, did was your accent or anything about you ever a barrier? Oh, yeah. It is a barrier. It is. Uh, I don't get called to be... A regular character unless she is Latina, still today. And also if she is Latina, a Latina may be with an accent because my accent is not erased. I guess I'm limited that way. Were you working consistently here? Right away, the minute I moved here, I booked a gig out of town in Chicago under Susanna Tubert, and a world premiere by Eddie Sanchez, Unmerciful Good Fortune. Wow. Yeah, that was a world I heard premiere. Of that. that. Yeah, it's a beautiful play. And I knew it was meant to be to come to New York. The, the other person with whom I came, we had married. We are divorced now. <laughs> but it happens. From, it happens. But we were together 22 years. It was not in my plan to become a mom because of the nature of the career. But, you know, those hormones... They play games. I don't. Re- I have no regrets. I love my kids. I have two. But when uh, we decided to get pregnant in two thousand and one, we bought a house in Peekskill, and uh, I'm I'm still there. So while you were doing theater here in New York City in the late nineteen nineties, did you were you also going out for television jobs as well, or was your career primarily in the theater? Because you're known now for a role on the Netflix series, The Unbreakable Kimmy Smith. You've been one of the co-stars all through the seasons. Uh, no, it was primarily theater. It okay. was primarily theater. Maybe I did three Law & Orders. Everybody's done exactly. Law & Order, except exactly. me. <laughs> Yet. But there's still time. Well, let's change there's that. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> I thought that was it. When I moved to Peekskill, I also became a tenured track professor at Hostos Community College. So I did not quit. I never quit. That's not in the Miranda family. And then after getting my tenure, I decided, you know what? I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to keep teaching, but as an actor. And it worked out. I met my agent at one of those four-day boot camps uh, those studios in the city offer. Because I I had been out of the loop for five years. So I And And that might as well be like your lifetime. Because in five years, everything changes. Oh, my God. It was a big change. Then everything was digital. The headshots in color. You know, uh, it was entering a different world. And that's how I met my agent. She came to one of the showcases, God bless her, Cynthia Katz from Gotham Talent. Is she the one that sent you out for Kimmy Schmidt? Yep. Talk about Kimmy Schmidt a little bit, the show. How, how, what, what, was that the first time that you were a co-star in a te- television series? Or a, a, not even television, a, a series. Recurring, recurring. Recurring, recurring. For recurring, 
then season two and three regular, and then season four, they kind of demoted us and uh, <laughs> the more women, and then we became guest stars every time we showed up. Uh, it, it's all about money, right? Oh, uh, of course it is. But it's good. We are very grateful. We had fun. Uh, what a great opportunity, right, to to be in in the same um, sandbox as the master, Tina Fey, and Robert Carlock, and the other writers, also the, the actors, you know, Carol Kane, oh, my God, you know. I remember watching her on Taxi when I was a kid. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. She's amazing. She's amazing. It's just very sweet and just wonderful. And but the rest of the cast, Titus, uh, uh, Ellie Kemper, and uh, Jane, Jane, you know, just wonderful, fun people to to work with. And of course, my mole women, you know, um, Sarah Chase and Lauren Adams. Did this series boost your theatrical career at all? Did it give you any other opportunities there? No, I actually have not gone for theater at all. Maybe I'm a little lazy. I don't know with commuting late at night. But it just, it just has to pay for the sacrifice. Oh, yes, obviously. Yeah, it has to pay for the sacrifice of also, I'm, I'm a single mom now. <laughs> so I have to be very mindful about my efforts getting compensated mm. uh, so I can live a sustainable life. Uh, also, I've done a lot of stuff the past 10 years in my community. Of yes, the- I was just about to bring that up. Um, perhaps you started you embarked upon the embark theater as a way to keep yourself in theater and stay close to home would that well, be you correct know, yes 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 embark uh was my co-founder business partner katie schmidt fader also a theater artist she does everything in theater she's she's she she writes she designs she choreographs she's musical theater trained she sings oh my god she directs she acts so it was her idea. I joined, and uh, then we became equal partners, co-founders, and uh, she was the executive director. We were both also producers and outreach, everything. So the uh, Embark uh, is a journey toward establishing and developing a performing arts center for peak skill with access uh, to the arts, affordable arts, and also... Uh, community participation in the arts. We did so much in eight years. We had two spaces. In the span of four years, we managed two spaces and everything that comes with it, the responsibilities, you know, you get insurance and all of that. And uh, the thing is that there's just so much you can do when you expect to be a paid staff at some point. You know, sadly, you know, there's just so much. And as we get older, we cannot continue to work for free. And right now it's on hiatus because of that. I mean, Peekskill is a wonderful artistic. So many people from Brooklyn are moving there. It started with the visual artists moving there. And now it's just more of different kinds of artists. There is a exodus of people from New York to Beacon. There's yes. a big storytelling community forming there and now. There's a show called The Artichoke at I don't remember the venue. It's run by a man named Drew Prohaska. Drew, hi! And um, who moved out there and just was bringing all the people that do The Moth and The Liar Show and Risk and all the other storytelling shows here up there to do stories. So yeah, the culture moves up. Because there's no expansion in the city anymore because it's all become 
not good for creative people. And it seems that your career has gone from place to place very organically. It's like every time you needed to do something, it, it just opened up for you. Well, thanks for saying that. I'm gonna. I'm I mean, gonna the way to... he, listening to you recount it, and I I want to go back to you getting the the recurring role on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Was this the first time that you had a part like this on a series? Absolutely, yes. Okay. yes now, yeah. what circumstances led to you getting this audition? My agent. Okay, yes, yes. tell me a little bit about that process. The thing with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, that audition process was a very unique, rare process. Because usually you have an audition and then you have a callback and uh, if there's a lot of, um, not competition, but if there are a lot of disagreements among producers and creatives in terms of who they want. Right, like if right? some people want you and some people don't want exactly, you. Exactly, or some people want name instead of no name or whatever it is. But for, for Unbreakable, it was very different. I went to one audition. This was one sentence, the one that she has. In, in episode one, my character, Donna Maria, when questioned by NBC anchor of um, Today Show, Matt Lauer, right? Someone else, oh, how did you get caught, right? Kidnapped. The next thing, why wow, he says that, uh, why didn't you learn English? And I say, bueno, estas pendejas no aprendieron español. Oh, right? snap. Oh, translate. This, this white bitch is yeah, not this learn bitch, she's, yeah, she's Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So I had to audition with that line. That was the one line wow. that the audition was about. One and sentence? Wow. I don't think that they expected to have Dona Maria talk much, and I owe it to the writers that they kept giving her more, you know, more presence. Well, because you put so much into the little that they gave you, they had to give you more. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was very nice of them. Um, and it also seems to me to be that this divine blessing or something, because she sent you to the audition that you were perfect for. I was like, what am I going to do with this one line, for God's sake? But you did it. You were meant to be it. But, yes, you must make a bold choice. And that's what I tell my students also. You know, you have to make a bold choice, uh, especially when you have such a limited, constricted situation. How do you make it rock? How do you make it spark? And actually, more than the line, it was more about a gesture and the attitude of this behavior in that physical gesture. So it started with a gesture. And Imagine the gesture that. became a statement, and the statement became a recurring a role. A person, yes, well, yes. I think this is a really good point to say a little pescado says that you have a little piece of your creative writing to share with us so um have you been a writer all through your career is this something that's new to you um i have written i just don't have the discipline so is this fiction non-fiction a this piece is, of a play is, a monologue uh, this is actually a character oh this great is, this is okay. a character and it's uh one of the characters that i included in my one woman show titled I Am Here, I Belong. And this was done in 2017 as part of an NEA grant given to Lana Hughes, part two of her project titled What Matters. So it started first one year with a mural and then she went to NEA and for the part two she wanted to make that multidisciplinary. So she came to Embark and reached out to Katie and um, and me. Was this I, the first time that you had done a solo show? No. I, okay. This is my second solo. The first one was based in 
poet Julia de Burgos. Mm. Yes, um, the first New Yorican poet, if you will. I interviewed many immigrants in Peekskill, documented and not documented. So I gathered many stories at group discussions, single interviews. So it was like a eight-month process. And then the process of gathering and sorting which story, how do I put this together? And then I was blessed with having three stories that connected because they are actually mother and two daughters. So what excerpt are you going to be reading? I'm going to read uh, Emilia's story, The Little Sister. Okay. Okay. And the title of this piece, again, is? I Am Here, I Belong. I killed Tito and Pepe. My two Cornish hens. I wanted them to fly, to be free. They were birds, so they should fly, right? I hear my mom screaming, no! All I could see from our fourth floor balconies, my Tito and Pepe smashed and bloody on the concrete sidewalk entrance to our building. I looked at Ma. I thought she was going to spank me. I see her running towards me, and I think, oh, my mice gonna jump. I said, don't. You sure won't fly? Don't try it. I was going to stop her, but I couldn't. The same powers I thought I could help Tito and Pepe, my mentor powers, did not help. But I was not about to lose my ma, but she stopped. She stopped, and she didn't spank me. She looked down and saw Tito and Pepe lying there, their feathers rustling in the wind, some blood streaming down the sidewalk, struggling to find some dirt and grass to hide the shame of a murderous child, me. Ma looked at me. I closed my eyes really tight, waiting for the spank. She hugged me and kissed the top of my head. I opened my eyes and wailed. She hugged me tighter, then kneeled in front of me and said, They can't fly, Amelia. These birds can't fly. They stick together like family, very close. They can't fly, Amelia. These birds can't fly. I was not consoled. I screamed their names. Tito! Pepe! I am so sorry. I love you. Ma gave me a warm bath and we took a banana nap together. Yes, those, those are the best naps. You know, the kind of nap where the person who loves you the most cradles you, like inside. Ah, oh, all was safe again. Wow. So it's like, I kind of think that this entire interview is just like a story. It's just like the story of your life. And it, it's an historia in itself. So if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about you or where you're performing or other things that you might be doing, where can they do so? Well, they can follow me on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I am at, at soulmiranda11. Uh, that is the number, not the word 11. Um, yeah, my Facebook is private. I want to keep it that way. So I ask this question of every artist I interview when we, we come to the end of our time together, Saul. If you had a word or two or three of advice or encouragement for a young person or any person who knows that they're a weirdo and they know that they have something to offer the world that maybe more than the constraints of their environment or upbringing will allow them to believe that they could achieve, what would you tell this person or this child? Stay weird. 
say we are, uh, have a lot of faith um, and um, be very gritty. Stick to it. You know, have grit. Just stick to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think perseverance too because, like, people quit. You see those when you were younger who just, you know, walk away, right? And you stick to it, and it's like there's less of us. <laughs> so it's like that um, American dicho, a winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Yeah, unless they win doing other things that yeah. will fulfill their lives. Because, you know, some of the friends that I that I keep in touch with that, I, that walked away, they're doing wonderful things. And it is my hope that they are um, filled with joy and love for the new things they embarked on. And that's the thing. You need to have the joy and the love for it because otherwise you're not going to stick with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I believe that your next role is right in front of you and you'll be in that soon. And you too. Yes, and me too. Igual. Yes. Well, yes. thank you for being Igualmente. a fish out of agua. So it's just been fantastic. Muchas gracias. Hug Muchas on the gracias. air. Yes. We always end with a hug on the air. Excellent. Woohoo! <laughs>
with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard the last of Saul Miranda's song picks by Panamanian singer, songwriter, actor, musician, Latin music legend Ruben Blades. The song was called Buscando America, Looking for America, and it's from his Buscando America album in 1984. I'd like to correct a slight error of omission at the beginning of Saul's interview. The friend of whom I was speaking that was at Embark Peekskill the night that I told the story there was Belinda Delgado. I can't believe that I left her name out after all that description. Well, anyway, Belinda, shout out to you. <laughs> How about a little housekeeping? Want to come and celebrate Radio Free Brooklyn's fourth anniversary with us? Yes, we've been broadcasting for four full years, and we'd love to share and celebrate this day with you. Come out on Friday, June 14th from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Tradesman Bar in Bushwick and go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org for more details. I'd like to close with the last of the song picks for this episode. And as I said in the beginning, we switched it around. So instead of me picking the song at the beginning, I picked the one at the end. This one is by the late, great Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. It's called This Land is Your Land, a folk song originally by Woody Guthrie. It's from the Naturally album in 2005, and this song is even more pertinent today, perhaps, with all the current debate on who belongs here and who doesn't. This is our land. And well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening for the past two and a half years to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is episode 101, and we're going to take a short hiatus, but we'll be back. So stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you not next week, maybe, but soon. Woohoo! for you and